Tonight, I want to talk to you about individuation and self-sufficiency. I want to talk to you about what happens to you as you embark along the path of individuation. Self-sufficiency becomes your greatest resource in that time. It becomes a necessity for you to be self-sufficient as you individuate and become what you are as a character. Now, this is very interesting because we have a dichotomy here. There are no individuals and yet there is the process of individuation. There is no self no individual self, and yet selfhood exists. And the goal of life, if you would have it, is to become an individual. The goal of human existence, the pinnacle of human existence, is individuation. And what occurs at the end of individuation is integration. Total psychological integration. Integration with the shadow, integration with the anima or eros, the principle of eros, integration with the animus or logos, the logical, and integration with the environment. All of these things need to be integrated before you can call yourself a true individuated human being. You can't call yourself an individual, but you can be an individuated human being. That is the process of integrating all of the elements of the psyche that are ordinarily unconscious. I have just deterred like half of whoever might listen to this because this is not easy to understand i'm going to try to break it down in less jargonized terms but understand that if i can't i just cannot there are just some words that there's no simpler way to explain than what i'm doing however as you individuate you are going to polarize you are going to polarize heavily in society. As you individuate, you are either going to attract some people strongly or reject or repel, I should say, other types of people very strongly. And it won't be through intention. It won't be through effort. It is just the nature of you not compromising your integrity will cause some people to really, 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 really like you and others, most people, to either really dislike you or avoid you altogether. This is for a select group of people, what I'm speaking about right now, male or female. But I'm speaking about individuation from the male perspective because that's all I know. And generally, most people who go through this process are going to be male.
I'm just going out on a limb and saying that because the pressure on females to individuate is not as harsh, is not as intense. As a man, if you don't individuate, you have to subjugate. You have to capitulate to the needs of others around you. As a woman, if you don't individuate, well, if you're particularly charming or particularly beautiful, your needs will be met regardless. People will go out of their way to serve you because they want something from you. They want your your anima, your eros. They want your feminine attention. So the pressure is really on men to individuate. Why is this important? Because you won't be satisfied without it. This is not for anyone else. This is not, I'm going to individuate and save the world. That's not going to happen. You individuate to save yourself from insanity, from psychological deterioration. If you do not fully not only accept but express the deepest and highest impulses that are bubbling within your unconscious, which will reveal themselves to you in, in your dreams, which will speak to you through your intuition and your unwarranted emotions, men are very, very good at dissociating from their emotions. And individuation is about incorporating and integrating with all of that. So there is an aspect of you that is, I wouldn't say unconscious, rather, well, you're not conscious of it, but it's super conscious. It supersedes your everyday consciousness, but it's not unconscious in the sense that it's dumb. The self, as Carl Jung would put it, is not dumb just because you're not aware of it or because it sits in your dreams and it informs you through there. It's actually smarter than your ego. It's actually smarter than your everyday consciousness. It has this tremendous pattern recognition ability and almost predictive ability. That your everyday, ordinary mind, what you call yourself, the mind that you use to walk in the world and interact with the world, does not have. And yet, underneath that mind, is another mind, which is informed and built by 
the collective mind. This is so strange and difficult to articulate because as you individuate, it's sort of like you tap into the collective unconscious. But it's like your sliver of the collective unconscious. You might call it the personal unconscious. But I wouldn't go so far as to say personal. I don't believe there's a personal unconscious. Instead, what there is is a, what would you call it? A network of archetypes and symbols that inform your personal unconscious, but they don't come from your personal unconscious. Like say the archetype of the knight the archetype of the warrior. That is something that's just in you. That crusader, that sword and shield and armor knight, or perhaps a, a katana, or perhaps a bow and arrow, or perhaps just that warrior archetype or the archetype of the knight, the holy warrior. That wasn't put there by you. That was developed through cultural interaction over millennia, eons. It was put there by evolution. But when you get in touch with it, you, the individual human being, or the seemingly individual human being, when you get in touch with it, you personalize it. You make it your own. You acquire the armor that suits you. And then, once you've acquired the armor that properly suits you, you can face the challenges that you are intended to face. This is why individuation is a necessity for certain people, specifically certain men. Because certain men are meant to face certain challenges and provide certain benefits to the world through the conquering of those challenges. We human beings are beasts of burden. We human beings need a task or a challenge or an aim in order to orient ourselves. The ego itself 
orients itself through what is me and what is not me, what is mine and what is not mine. And the task of the ego, so it thinks, is to take what is not mine and make it more mine. Take as much of what is not mine and make it all mine as I can. But it's more complicated than that. It's more sophisticated than that. It's that... One needs to... Encounter... That which is outside of their knowledge structures. Outside of the known outside of the conquered outside of conquered ground or conquered territory in order to actualize their deepest identities their deepest fantasies So let's get back on the topic of individuation then. Let's bring it back to individuation. And then we'll talk about actualization through individuation. This process is painful. This process requires solitude. This process requires self-determination, self-ordinance in pre-agrarian cultures, what we might call nomadic cultures or hunter-gatherer cultures, there was always someone who through no intention of their own simply broke into the unconscious is the way Jung would describe it. They wouldn't call it that way. The, the, the pre-agrarian cultures would call that they're in the spirit world. They're in the world of the spirits. They're in the world of knights and dragons and, and tremendous spirits and forces that are beyond human comprehension. They're in that world. They're in la-la land. They're schizophrenic is the way modern psychology might describe them. They're psychotic. However, these nomadic cultures had a different perspective as to what it meant to have a break from ordinary, everyday consciousness and be expanded into 
the realm of the archetypes. That was a gift back then. It was a painful and challenging gift. And if you hadn't been uh, oriented or mentored by someone who had gone through it before, you could lose yourself. You very well might lose yourself. But if you learned to navigate in the realm of the archetypes, in the realm of the collective unconscious, and also contribute in the world of everyday practicality, you were called a shaman. You were deemed a holy man. You were, and these were generally men. I'm not saying there were never any female shamans, but the, like I said, individuation in this particular process of coming into contact with the archetypes generally happens to men. I don't know what the numbers are, but I'd, I'd, take, I'd venture a guess and say that most cases of schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, psychoaffective breaks are men. This process generally happens to men. And the same was with shamans. And these people carried wisdom. These people were the cultural repository for spiritual wisdom. But they only reached that point after a painful ordination of encountering the loss of self. And so this is the difference between the holy man of nomadic cultures and the holy man of agrarian cultures is an agrarian culture has something called a priest. And that person is someone who studies the cultural dogma, learns it, and then passes it on. They are themselves uh, ordained with the cultural dogma through a through an authoritative system. However, for the shaman, there is no authority that does this to you. It just happens. You don't ask for it. You don't seek that path. It just happens. And if you're lucky, there's another human being who's just as crazy as you inside of the tribe who can tell you what's happening to you, if you're lucky. And if not, you better figure it out on your own and learn how to contribute through that, um, let's say, neuroatypicality because that's what it is that's what like autism and asperger's is as well neuroatypicality so if you find yourself in a position of being neuroatypical in today's society you're kind of fucked Unless you unless you learn how to mask it like me, <laughs> unless you learn how to adopt the uh, unless you learn how to adopt the lingo and the dance of current society, if you're neuroatypical, you're just kind of a freak. You're treated that way. You're imagined that way. You're perceived that way. But neuroatypicality 
can be a gift. It can also be the thing that is your downfall, but it can be a gift. Certain types of sensitivity can be a gift. If they are treated with reverence and care and what I'll call awareness. So what does this have to do with individuation? Well, individuation is the process of voluntarily embracing and inviting neuroatypicality. Individuation is the process of going crazy yourself, doing it yourself, for yourself, allowing yourself and inviting it and encouraging yourself to go insane willfully. This is what happened to Carl Jung, although for him, the process was so powerful that it was kind of the line was blurred as to whether or not it was voluntary or not because his unconscious had been repressed for so long as he was trying to maintain his identity as a scientist and a psychologist that uh, when the collective unconscious started to pour through him, through his individual subconscious, let's call it, and communicate into and, and, and impose itself, impose its will on his everyday conscious mind, it was so powerful that he could not control it, but he could invite it. He could allow it. And it showed him things. It showed him the First World War. It showed him blood running down the hills. It showed him the assassination of a prince. And what happened? What began World War I? The assassination of Archduke, whatever the fuck his name was. That's what started World War I. He saw that in his dreams years beforehand because he underwent the process of individuation, of inviting neuroatypicality. And it made him sensitive to the pattern recognition system that was lurking in his unconscious. And that pattern recognition system recognized the pattern of modern science or what was modern science for them being potentially destructive because it wasn't tempered by the spiritual uh, morality that had dominated uh, the previous centuries. God was dead. God had been killed by man and replaced by science, replaced by the powers and the will of man. So with a dead God and no one to tell you otherwise and all of the power in the world 
a world war should have been obvious. A war of untempered, immoral, scientifically enhanced human egotism. Carl Jung saw that before it happened. And it's like in hindsight, it should have been obvious, but it wasn't. No one listened to him when he said, look, I'm having these dreams. I'm having these visions of the world burning. We need to slow down with this science shit. <laughs> How crazy is it for a someone who considered himself a scientist for most of his life, a human psychological scientist to say, hey, we need to slow down with modern science because we are going to destroy ourselves. And then destruction and suffering and pain on an unprecedented scale happened just a year after Jung started having these dreams. The first world war happened. More death than had ever occurred before. And it set the precursor for the greatest human tragedy, the greatest tragedy of human history, perhaps, which was the Second World War. It set the stage for that. That was just the warm up. So that's just a little bit on Jung. That's just a little bit on inviting neuroatypicality. And what can happen to you? It, it makes you a wise man. It may make you a holy man, but it doesn't necessarily make you a happy one. This is not a path for those seeking happiness. That's one thing that I should um, elucidate and make clear now. Individuation is not going to make you a happier person. But frankly, happiness is overrated. Happiness is unconsciousness, in my opinion. Bliss would be super consciousness. Bliss is union with the divine, which is inside and outside and the recognition that there is no inside and outside. And that's bliss. And some people take LSD and they see that, but you don't need LSD to see that. I'm telling you, that's the way it is already. This is already that bliss. However, happiness is sort of this chemical barbiturate that blinds you to the fact that you are in a world, you, the individuated self, are in a world where you have responsibility. I mean, think about it. What is a party? but the abandonment of responsibility. I'm off work. Uh, uh, the kids are at home. Uh, you know, all of my obligations have been hopefully fulfilled and now I can go to the club or now I can go party. Hap and, and then I can be happy. Happiness is just the abandonment of responsibility. But that is that can be destructive, especially if it's pursued for too long, especially if it's chemically enhanced or if the happiness is dependent upon chemical enhancement. It can be extremely destructive.
be very, very, very wary of people who are too happy. Or people who, for example, manic depressives, their problem isn't that their life sucks, it's that they're too damn happy and they make irrational decisions. They think now is the time to buy, 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 and everything is great, and life is great, and I love everything, and things are awesome. And then they're in a manic state. And then they make decisions that the rational aspect of their minds comes to regret. And then they fall into depression because they realize, hey, I'm like $40,000 in debt over the last weekend. And I've alienated my entire family and I might now have a drinking problem. And then that's depression for like the next eight months. Happiness is dangerous. If it's not tempered with responsibility, with awareness, with conscientiousness. So, if I were to describe my own state of mind, typically, I would say that I'm never unhappy, but I'm rarely, like, happy. <laughs> I, I, I don't try to avoid it, but I don't get, like, giddy. I might feel extreme gratitude. I might even feel bliss when the ego steps aside and there's just simply the allowance of the beauty of life to just seep through me and pour through me, then there might, then there might be the experience of bliss. But that sort of whoopee, I win, I win everything, I'm the best. That's that egoic happiness, which is extremely short-lived, that doesn't come up here very often. I don't get too high or too low. There's just simply either peace or bliss, which is just, I don't know what you might call it, um, a deepening, an intense deepening of inner peace. That's what I would describe as bliss. And that deepening comes through the recognition that there's no self and so there's no death and so there's nothing to worry about. There's just life happening. And yet when I say there's no self, I don't mean or I should say, there's no egoic individual self. What Jung, what Carl Jung described as the self would be something like the human being's expression of the collective unconscious will. Or, I would put it, the human being's expression of the collective superconscious will that's the self according to jung and that 
according to Jung, is also no different than Christ. That is what is meant by Christ consciousness. This is getting really, really esoteric. This is going to alienate a lot of people. But if there's one thing this human being is good at, it's alienating people in pursuit of its own truth. And that's just individuation. That's just the process of individuation. I'm extremely well-spoken. I like to think I'm extremely good-looking. I'm charming and fun to be around. And yet I don't have many friends. And that's because I'm seeking something that only I can see. I'm seeking something that will only be recognized by myself, which is my own actualization. I feel that I'm well along the path toward my actualization, but I'm not there yet. I have not completed my individuation. And Jung sort of implied that you never really complete your individuation. You just get better and better at it. Because you can't truly individuate because there's no individual. But there's the human experience of individualism. And that can be strengthened through solitude, through meditation, through pursuit of an inwardly valued goal. A goal that was set before you, a goal that has been set before you by your own deepest urges, which are not necessarily physical urges. For example, this human being is not particularly prone to physical urges. This human being is not promiscuous. This human being isn't even seeking to become promiscuous. Not now or even in the future. There is a deeper urge in me to actualize something which I can't even fully envision yet. But that, to me, is more important than satisfying my physical urges, even as they do come up. And so there is something, a higher orientating, higher orientating, higher orienting principle that is guiding my actions, that is beyond just my simple physicality. And this is where Jung and Freud sort of split because Freud had this conception of us as sort of these barely civilized animals who are just sort of holding it all together, uh, holding, all, holding, barely holding uh, back our blind lust and rage and violent urges. Whereas Jung saw us as something more sophisticated that, yes, we do have an unconscious mind, but what's lurking in that unconscious mind is not just sex and violence. Although those things lurk in there too, it is something deeper. It is a higher orientating principle. And the more that you allow that to seep into your life and seep into your everyday ordinary consciousness, first of all, the weirder you will seem to other people because they want to keep that stuff unconscious. They do not want to do their shadow work as uh, Jungian psychology might frame it. They do not want to become aware of their own idiosyncrasies and they don't want to become aware of their deepest urges. Because then if you're aware that you have an urge to actualize something higher, then every moment you spend 
chasing lower urges feels like a waste. Once you clarify that you have a goal and a vision, every moment you spend not in pursuit of that vision feels like a waste. And so it's better to just remain vague and muddy and then you don't have to feel like a failure because you don't have a goal. You don't have an aim, so you can't fail. But then that's the ultimate failure, is not clarifying an aim. But I'll tell you how far I've gotten along, along, um, along the way of my own... Um, what would you call it? I'll tell you how clear my vision is right now. I see a company called Contra. Contra means against or different, which is pretty much all this guy is at this point. As I, as I actualize and individuate, I just get more and more and more and more different and more and more isolated as a result too. That's okay. That's not a complaint. It's a recognition that that's just what's happening to this human being. Um, I see a company called Contra in which medicinal herbal cigars, that's what I'm going to say, herbal cigars, of the highest quality in the world are hand rolled. I see a I see a coffee shop in Brazil in which perhaps those contras are served, but also just simple, strong Brazilian coffee and a nice place to sit down, hook up your Wi-Fi and get to work, do some work is possible and have some really affordable, nice, strong Brazilian coffee. I see a retreat in which human beings are allowed free of charge to come and experience the psychedelic of their choosing under the supervision of someone who has done all of them. Maybe me, maybe not me. These are the things that I see for myself in the future. These are the things that I do not articulate to other people in my immediate social surroundings, because if I did, they wouldn't understand. Why would you want these things? What's the big deal about taking drugs? What's the big deal about weed cigars? What's the big deal of a coffee shop or something like that? And so this causes the human being, instead of capitulating and going, oh, maybe that's a stupid idea, to say, all right, well, if you don't see the value in that, then you're no longer relevant because I see the value in it. So you're no longer relevant to my experience. I'm already headed along that path because that's the path of individuation. I could just, I could just capitulate and 
uh, sacrifice my deepest urges and acquire a regular job. And well, I do have a regular job, but uh, resign myself to the idea that that's what I'm going to be doing forever. I'm a pretty good writer. I already earn a good living as a writer, as a technical writer and a blogger and a um, and a content writer for several different companies. I could do that for the rest of my life and be just fine in terms of earning a living. But that doesn't satisfy me. That doesn't excite me. That doesn't that doesn't keep me awake at night. Contra keeps me awake at night. The pilonero, which is just another term for the Brazilian coffee shop, keeps me awake at night. The, I don't even know what to call it, the retreat, the psychedelic retreat keeps me awake at night. This podcast keeps me awake at night. What I do for capital in the short to medium term is just it's just that it's just a means to an end it's a means of getting to where i'm going of where to where i'm headed i don't see it as the end i'm 23 it's just the beginning (laughs) it's all ahead of me and i'm not saying that you have to be like me in that regard, because I'm also like 90th percentile introversion. So I'm very, very comfortable alone. And some people have to have people around in order to function optimally. I'm not saying they need people around, but in order to function optimally, they need to be around large groups of people. That's extroversion. That's what extroversion is. And I'm not saying that you have to be visionary. But what I am saying is that as you individuate, you will have to face solitude. You will have to face rejection of your ideas from other human beings who do not have the same value structures as you. You will have to learn to develop self-sufficiency in that regard. You will have to learn to pedestalize your vision above all other things, to pedestalize the satisfaction of that deeper or higher urge, which is coming to you from where? By the way, where the hell did I get all of these ideas from? I didn't generate these through my conscious mind. Most of the things that that I want to do come to me in the form of dreams or intuitions. This is coming to me from my personal link to the human collective unconscious. The human collective unconscious expects of me and almost demands of me that I become the highest version of myself, become the most actualized version of myself. That urge is in all people, but the degree to which we follow that urge varies from human to human. 
Some people can snuff that urge out and go, well, yeah, that's cool, but I'm having a lot of sex right now. Or that's cool, but I'm a lawyer and I make $800,000 a year. So, you know, I don't really I don't really want to become a composer. My favorite composer, my favorite composer in the world was a lawyer until he was 40. This is someone who I consider is an absolute musical genius who had music on Italian radio by the time he was 17. But sacrifice that urge because generally people who are creative geniuses are also just geniuses and they're able to just do anything became a lawyer because that's what's that's what a practical human being does a practical human being chooses a responsibility and provides a practical man does that and he was a practical man first and an artist second and he was a lawyer until he was 40. His name is Piero Piccioni. There's very little information available uh, about him online, but that much is um, confirmed. How do you go from the practice of law, perhaps the most sterile, artless, uh, colorless, and hyper-linguistic occupation to pure musical composition with very rarely are there like musical lyrics in in his compositions so i mean just a complete flip this is what i mean by um individuation or by the will of the collective unconscious sort of forcing itself through a particular conduit which is what you become as an artist is a conduit for love a conduit for uh, the materialization of impulses that vibrate through the human collective unconscious. I mean, if you hear this man's music, I'm going to just go off on this guy's music now. If you hear this man's music, you would think that he had been composing his entire life. Nope, he was a lawyer. <laughs> completely unrelated and completely so very different from composing music that it's almost unbelievable. Music is a linguistic, a lexical, meaning there's no linguistic meaning to be gleaned from his, particularly his music. There's no linguistic meaning to it. It's just energy and timing and sound and impulse and raw emotion and love. That's what's in Piero's music. That's what I hear. When I listen to Piero. Where's the, where's, the, where's the place for all of that in, in the practice of law? Law is reading and speaking. Reading and articulating. That's law. Language. It's almost exclusively a linguistic occupation.
And yet, the collective unconscious demanded of him such that he could not avoid it, demanded of him something which could not be expressed through words, something which had to be expressed through music. And he's sort of a happy ending success story because he ended up composing the scores for a lot of very popular Italian films. And so he made a freaking killing doing that anyhow. Probably more so than he did as a lawyer, I don't know. Again, there's very little information available about Piero Piccioni online. But I would, I would venture to guess that in the end, even though he, as a youth, probably chose an occupation that he thought would um, put food on the table, uh, the thing that brought him the greatest abundance was expressing his, intuit his intuitive will. Where do compositions come from? If you ask the composer, they say, it's not from me. Not my will, but thine be done. I might say that in every episode. If you ask him where the music came from, he'd say it comes from beyond. It comes from the self, Carl Jung would put it. And we all have this alexical, alinguistic, meaning non-linguistic, perceptive and intuitive and artistic aspect to ourselves, which is hyper-intelligent and hyper-sophisticated. Carl Jung would often have his patients draw mandalas. A mandala is sort of this very trippy, circular, artistic piece. It's better for you to just look at a mandala than for me to try to describe it to you because every mandala is different. But uh, Jung would have his patients often draw mandalas as a means of therapy and not only is it calming to look at a mandala it is calming to draw a mandala for whatever reason people often say they see mandalas when they take substances like dmt as well just an unrelated tidbit uh but the process goes something like this jung instructs you to draw a mandala and the first five or 10 or 15 of the ones that you draw look like a two-year-old drew them. And then suddenly, almost of its own accord, by the 20th or 25th or 30th or 30 or 40th mandala you draw, they suddenly become more sophisticated. They suddenly, there's an artistic and almost narrative thread that runs through the mandalas that you draw almost as though you are drawing the story of your life but through these weird trippy artistic circles that are completely of your own accord there's no instructions that Jung gives you he just expresses to you he articulates to you what a mandala is and then lets you run free with it and the first few that you draw suck 
for several you draw suck and then eventually something more sophisticated comes through and that's the process of individuation that's the process of artistry as well the first few attempts at artistry are often vague and rough unless you're just a genius unless you're you know mozart or beethoven and you're composing at five and this is where the arguments for certain uh principles like reincarnation uh come in although i don't believe individual selves are reincarnated but certainly spirits can be reincarnated like the spirit of artistry or the spirit of knighthood the spirit of heroism i think that can be definitely passed on and reincarnated but that's um irrelevant i just i'm just trying to explain child genius right now but who knows maybe i'm wrong uh Nonetheless, the first few attempts or the first few uh, strides along the path of individuation are often awkward because you're not used to it. You're not used to being given free reign to do as you choose. And so you, your expressions come out rough, unsophisticated. But gradually, as you are encouraged by your therapist to to continue along that line of self-expression, they do evolve and tell a story. One that is not articulable in language. And so that's all I'll say for now on individuation. Uh, I'm sure I'll have a lot more to say in the coming episodes. However, this episode is now going on 55 minutes long with very little breaks, which means I have been talking to you for almost an hour nonstop. (laughs) Uh... You have things to do, practical things to do. I have practical things to do. So let us get back to them and discuss openness and artistry and individuation and divinity at a later time. Goodbye.